Welcome back to the All Things Connected podcast, where we explore the most pressing and fascinating issues of today with experts in their field. This is your host, Jared Hocking. Well, a brief preview of what's to come on the show before I introduce today's episode. Next week, I will be speaking with the filmmaker and renowned photojournalist Kate Brooks and Dr. Rebecca Hardin, who is a professor of anthropology and environment at the University of Michigan about Kate's 2018 film, The Last Animals, which Dr. Hardin served as a producer and academic advisor on. The Last Animals, which I watched recently, is a harrowing film documenting the poaching crisis in Africa. I'll also be speaking soon with Naomi May Wilson, former two-term president of the Rackham Student Government and PhD candidate at the University of Michigan, about the role of institutional and individual racism in our society, and of course, the recent Black Lives Matter movement. I'll also be speaking soon with the journalist and soon-to-be author Rachel Gross, who was recently the digital science editor at Smithsonian Magazine. Rachel has published across a number of disciplines, including the environment, disease ecology, the trade-offs and intersection of science and religion, and most recently, she's writing about gender and reproductive health. Next month, I'll also be speaking with renowned wildlife journalist at National Geographic, Natasha Daly, and the recent director of AI for the Air Force and author of the forthcoming book, T-AI, Humanity's Countdown to Artificial Intelligence and the New Pursuit of Global Power, Michael Keenan. So interesting conversations to come. Today, I'm speaking with truly one of the most interesting people you could ever hope to come across, Johannes Fufopoulos, who specializes in wildlife ecology and the evolution of infectious diseases. His expertise is particularly relevant today, given that COVID-19 is a zoonotic disease, meaning that it has been transmitted from non-human animals to humans. Johannes has studied wildlife on nearly every continent and has some remarkable experiences I've learned, which sadly we don't have much time to get into here, but we do cover a number of fascinating topics including what distinguishes a virus from a pathogen or a parasite, the evolutionary adaptations of COVID-19 and its link to the wildlife trade, the truly abhorrent practices of wildlife trade that are occurring in Southeast Asia, the connection between other anthropogenic pressures on wildlife, including deforestation, land use change, and factory farming and their link to global pandemics. And finally, Johannes's thoughts on the importance of individual action to create environmental change, but also the role of institutions. And with that, I bring you Johannes Fufopoulos. Okay, I'm here with Professor Johannes Fufopoulos, a very tricky last name to say. Did I get it mostly right, Professor? Yes. It's correct. Okay, perfect. I'm here with Professor Johannes, as as I call him, and I'm very grateful that you took the time for this conversation. You're welcome. I'm glad to be here. So I have a plan to guide our listeners through this conversation in a stepwise fashion and lead us to the core of the conversation, which is focusing on an aspect of the current pandemic that has been mostly overlooked and lost in the conversation with an understandable focus on saving human life, which is the the priority right now of most policymakers and leaders. But this topic is the origin of the virus and its connections to the legal and illegal wildlife trade mostly happening in Asia. But before we get there, I think it would be useful to, as I said, guide our listeners through some of these fundamental questions using your expertise in disease ecology, and wildlife ecology. So my first question is, what is a virus? And could you speak to the evolutionary history or ecology of what a virus is? And how is this term differentiated from other commonly used terms such as pathogen or parasite? Uh, That's a really good question. So let me just first back up and say in the field of ecology and evolutionary biology, a parasite is any kind of organism that derives its resources from other species and typically lives in close proximity to this other species it it, uh, obtains its resources from. Pathogen is non-exclusive subgroup of uh, Parasites that um, have also a 
a negative effect on the host. Although there's really a spectrum, there is parasitic organisms that uh, really have a very mild effect on their hosts to the extent that parasitism is not, not even noticed. And on the other hand, you can have uh, parasitic organisms, pathogens, that can kill their host, right? And these are the ones that we're most uh, concerned about. So a virus is just one subcategory of organism that uh, uh, viruses are this group of organisms that are very simple in their structure. Basically, most of the functions have been stripped away to the absolute minimum to the point where, uh, depending on what kind of definition you use for whether something is alive or not, if you just have a viral particle that is actually outside the cell and is just floating through the environment, it's completely inert. Okay, so it's a it's 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 a bunch of chemicals basically, but once it gets into the proximity of the cell and it enters the cell, then um, it starts having this very complex uh, initiates the very complex sequence of infection and reproduction, and in the process, it can have um, sometimes devastating effects on its on its host. So basically, viruses are just one subcategory of parasitic or pathogenic organisms. And how is this related to bacteria? Are all viruses a form of a microscopic form of bacteria or is bacteria different? Yeah, so bacteria is a completely different group of organisms. They are much more complex. They can often just exist actually perhaps typically independent of cells so they don't really require a host cell versus viruses they absolutely require a host cell that allows them to parasitize and re uh, obtain resources and then reproduce okay and so speaking to what i know is your expertise the evolutionary history of a virus can you speak to this con these concepts that you were getting at about a host or speaking specifically to the ecology of the coronavirus is a what is called a zoonotic uh, virus. Am I understanding that correctly? This is a virus that can be passed between humans and animals, uh, non-human animals. So can you speak about that evolutionary history of these viruses? Yeah. So um, what, what happens is if you look at uh, at a viral, um, at a virus, um, and what it does, it basically um, uh, depends on its host, the organism it infects, and from which it takes resources, and whose metabolic system it hijacks in order to reproduce. And so there's this relationship of dependence of the virus on the host. And in order, because vir viruses are very much subject to evolutionary pressures to maximize their reproduction, um, they're very much fine-tuned to the physiology of their host. In other words, viruses are specialized. They specialize on one particular species of, of host um, or sometimes a group of, of hosts. Um, so... Uh, zoonotic viruses uh, are viruses that have the ability to infect uh, both animals and humans as well. But generally, when we are talking about zoonotic pathogens, we're talking about uh, organisms that have the ability to do cross-infection, to infect one species of host, um, typically an animal, and then um, infect humans as well. All of this is excellent because, as I said at the beginning, I think this sometimes gets lost in in translation from what is understood scientifically to general public awareness. So I, I think knowledge that we take for granted or think we know, but understanding it is is crucial. So my next question, Johannes, is how do we differentiate between a virus and a disease? At what point does a virus become a disease? Okay, so these are actually different um, different terms, right? So the virus is the, we're talking about an organism that infects another organism. A disease is essentially the result of this infection. 
It's the aggregate of pathologies that uh, um, the host experiences if they're infected with that virus. So in line with what I mentioned earlier, that um, uh, some viruses may have very subtle effects on their hosts, other ones may have very severe ones, there are a lot of uh, viral infections that are asymptomatic in the host. So they don't cause disease. So it's really important to differentiate between the infectious organism, the virus, for example, if we're talking about a viral pathogen, and the set, the the, the constellation of conditions it uh, causes in the host, the disease. Okay. So, and incidentally, the same distinction applies to bacteria or any kind of other parasitic or pathogenic organism, okay? You have parasitic helminths, uh, worms that infect uh, hosts. You have protozoans like malaria. Um, they do the same thing. They take resources from the host and they require a host in order to reproduce. But there's always the distinction between the infectious organism and the disease. And so that brings us to, as I said, this is going to be a stepwise fashion getting to the heart of this conversation. So this moves in the direction of COVID-19, which is the disease, as I understand it, or or SARS-CoV-2, as the scientific community refers to it, which is differentiated from the virus that it is ca- causing it, which is the coronavirus, a novel coronavirus. Mm-hmm. And there are 46 species of known coronavirus in the Latin family, I believe, coronaviridae. Do I have that right so far? Yeah. So, um, so in, in the case of, uh, of the, the latest pandemic, the disease is COVID-19. We have a uh, COVID-19 epidemic. Um, but the causative organism, the name of the virus that caused the disease is the SARS-CoV-2 virus. And so this is a perfect intersection of your interests in wildlife disease and wildlife ecology and our broader interests of wildlife conservation and anthropogenic pressures. So let's talk about, explain for our listeners, there there are two generally accepted theories. One is emerging, one has been established from the beginning about how this pandemic started and the connection between the wildlife trafficking or, or wildlife trade and the COVID-19 pandemic. So speaking about the first theory, from your understanding, how did this virus originate and how did it get passed to humans? So essentially, uh, um, there's been a lot of speculation about the origins uh, of this virus, and it is not clear whether we will ever know the exact details about the emergence of this pathogen. Um, but it the, the best evidence we have right now based on the molecular analysis of the genome of this organism is, um, so one of the first things that um, Chinese and uh, um, international scientists, uh, uh, one of the first tasks they completed was sequencing the genome of this virus and then looking for uh, examining, examining the structure of the various genes in the virus and comparing them to existing, uh, to the genome of existing of known viruses to see um, what is most closely related to. And um, this can be quite useful because this exercise because, um, for example, um, if we can discover that it's related to some other known viruses, then there might be insights that can be applied from the treatment of other of, the, of these other related viral diseases to um, to this particular pandemic. At any mm-hmm. rate, this kind of um, work, which is ongoing, has shown that um, this virus is most uh, closely related to a group of other viruses in the coronavirus family that um, uh, parasitize bats, Chinese bats. And we know this because they're related um, pathogens, uh, viruses that have emerged, um, most notably the SARS uh, 
virus that emerged uh, about uh, 18 years ago and that didn't quite result in a global pandemic, but was responsible for quite serious epidemic that affected people in multiple countries. That virus was even was more lethal, SARS-CoV-2 right now, and um, um, we were very lucky. And it took the efforts of a lot of people to manage to contain that epidemic. At any rate, both viruses, um, as far as we can tell, emerged from bats, from uh, rhinolophus bats, um, and most likely in southern China. This is um, so. This is where the genome of the virus has the closest similarities to. Um, we haven't found a perfect match, and. Uh, um, this is very it's a very difficult job because basically it involves going to visiting remote locations in uh, in various caves most likely in places like Yunnan in southern China and um, catching those bats in these remote locations sampling them and then seeing whether one can obtain uh, viral samples from infected bats and then compare those to the uh, genome of, of the particular pathogen here. Right. Well, well, so what I'm getting at with this question is how did, what is the connection between the passing of this virus from bats to humans? It's not, we don't, as humans, we don't often have contact with bats, but there's a specific uh, believed theory of how this virus was passed to humans. And it's a result of uh, the wildlife trade in Asia of, of live animals and dead animals. Can you talk about that connection? Yeah. So um, if you think about it, um, if this is a, a bat pathogen, humans are not necessarily in close contact with bats to have lots of opportunities for this cross infection from bats to humans. So this is actually, you think, a pretty rare event. Having said that, in, um, in the East Asia, there is a, there is a tradition of um, hunting and eating bats. And this is always um, a dangerous proposition because when you actually catch live animals and you, you 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 kill and consume them, there's always the risk of exposing yourself to the pathogens of these organisms. So you can go, you can visit uh, various kinds of markets in Laos or Vietnam or Malaysia, Indonesia, China, and you will find uh, freshly killed bats being offered. To, for, for food. And this is just a really dangerous practice because essentially you have all these sources of pathogens very close to large numbers of animals, of, 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 of humans and of animals, other animals that are being traded. So you have a lot of uh, potential for cross-infection. So that's the, simple, the simplest way in which you can have what we call an epidemic spillover where a virus mm -hmm. that normally circulates within one species of host, these bats, um, spills over into different host species, um, in this case, humans. Um, I will say that this is not necessarily an easy process. And the reason why it's not easy is that the virus, remember I mentioned, is adapted to the physiology of its host, it's fine-tuned, it's a lock and key principle where it's adapted to the physiology of a bat, for example. So when it spills over, when, it when a human gets exposed to the virus, chances are that the virus is not able to replicate very effectively inside the, uh, the, the new host because the physiology of the host is just not right. It's not what it's supposed to do. It's like putting a key into the wrong lock. And most right, likely what I've heard in in this analogy is it's almost like a slot machine. You have to have the exact environmental and evolutionary histories to be able to have a virus that is able to have the spillover. Is that right? It's it's almost like a a lottery. Yeah, in practice, it's um, it's it's an issue of how different the hosts are from each other physiologically. So, for example. The most dangerous viruses for humans are viruses that normally parasitize 
our closest relatives, great apes, primates, other mammals. Um, there is less of a concern, and there are fewer zoonotic uh, viruses that come from birds or from reptiles, and there are almost none that come from amphibians or fish, simply because these are organisms that are um, that are more distant from us, have a different physiology, and therefore it's very difficult for a virus to actually uh, successfully reproduce in humans. Now, having said that, it's often a numbers game. In other words, if you have repeated opportunities of exposure where humans are exposed to some sort of uh, wildlife pathogen, and especially if the, the, the inoculum, basically the amount of viruses humans are exposed, that, that's often important. There's a big difference whether you're exposed to um, a few viral particles or a great load, because often the immune system is able to deal with small groups, small amounts of virus. Um, so if exposure happens repeatedly and you have a lot of viral particles being transmitted, eventually that increases the chances that, you, that the virus is able to successfully um, infect a human. Okay. And then mm -hmm. What, what happens is you start having a, a selection process within the, within the human host in which uh, some of these viruses may mutate. They're competing with, it, with each other within the host. Some of them may get outcompeted. The better ones uh, reproduce better and are the ones that are being shed in larger numbers from the host. And then um, it's maybe easier to go to the second step, which is a transmission from human to human. Okay, so many uh, very dangerous pathogens have achieved the first step, which is this is a zoonotic pathogen that might be able to infect humans, but you don't have human to human transmission, which is the second really big step in order to have uh, an epidemic take off. So, for example, there are mm -hmm. strains of avian flu that are very lethal to humans, and humans will actually contract them from birds. But the virus is not really able to um, easily go jump from one human to the other. So it's that second step that hasn't been successful, hasn't successfully happened. But if the virus mutates, eventually it might be able to do that as well. Okay, and then mm -hmm. and then you're in, in 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 really serious trouble. So one of the big uh, concerns right now among public health experts who work with zoonotic pathogens is um, are, are, are they avian flus. There's a variety of strains that circulate in South Asia that keep emerging. And um, these are pathogens that can be truly lethal, uh, much more virulent than, than uh, uh, SARS-CoV-2. But um, they're just not very good in being transmitted from human to human. So if that happens, then we would have a truly frightening pandemic at our hands. Right. And speaking about the issue that you raised that this virus originated in bats and their and the connection with the wildlife trade, can you talk about how big of an issue this is and how in, in these wildlife markets and how for decades really, or, or years, it seems like the scientific community experts like you and other disease ecologists have been saying that this is a horrible idea of trading both alive and dead animals, wildlife in these markets in, in Asia. Can you talk about the, how you, the, the scope of this issue and how you had foreseen the scientific community had foreseen this issue? Right. Um, so let me let me say that there are a lot of details we still need to figure out in regard to um, the latest the, to the COVID nineteen pandemic. Um, but one of the things that um, a pattern that we see again and again uh, happening, and that probably happened here as well, but we we don't have all the evidence yet, is that often. Just because bats are their physiology, yes, they're mammals, they're relatively closely related to, to humans, but they're still pretty different. And they're also very small organisms. And humans are not often in contact, in direct contact with bats. So um, 
the pattern we see very often is um, there have been emerging pathogens that originate in bats, but humans didn't get directly um, infected from bats. In other words, what happened is the bats infected another species, that um, another species of host, another mammal, that with which they got relatively frequently in contact, and then that species infected humans. So let me give you an example. So this intermediate species is typically called an amplification host. So um, there is a very lethal um, virus called Nipah that emerged um, maybe about 20 years ago in Southeast Asia. And it's, uh, it's a virus that you typically find in flying foxes, which are these uh, tropical mega bats. These are really big bats with um, three feet wingspan. Um, they're mostly fruit eaters. They live in tropical environments. And uh, they have a whole slew of viruses that can be very, very dangerous for humans. Nipah is one of them. Um, so apparently what happened is this was an example of how environmental degradation and climate change can actually lead to the emergence of pathogens. So essentially, uh, 1998 was a year in which we had a big El Nino event. This is a climatic disruption that uh, is mostly centered in the Pacific uh, Basin. And the result was that in the region around um, Indonesia, there was a drought which allowed local farmers um, to burn down the rainforest and turn uh, areas that were previously forested into agricultural lands, oil palm plantations, for example. So um, in the process of burning the rainforest and destroying the habitat, they pushed a lot of these bats out of the rainforest. And these bats were now seeking food. So this is the pieces of the puzzle that epidemiologists were able to put together after the fact. But these bats ended up in places where there are mango plant plantations because they feed on fruit like mango. Apparently, feeding in the mango trees, they would their droppings would drop under the tree. And um, what happens in Malaysia often is pig farms have mango trees planted in the vicinity, and the pigs will actually forage under the mango trees. So essentially what now happened is because of environmental disruptions, bats ended up being in contact, foraging in the same area like the pigs. And through their droppings, they actually infected the pigs with the Nipah virus. This is the story that inspired the 2011 film Contagion. Have you seen that film? Yes, it's a very frightening film. And uh, it's, it depicts a scenario that's actually um, worse than what we're dealing with, but it's not unrealistic. But essentially it describes a virus that's much more uh, lethal than uh, SARS-CoV-2. Um, essentially what, what, what happened then is pigs, once they get infected with Nipah virus, they started, um, you know, when you have a big sow that weighs several hundred uh, pounds, and it starts coughing, and it, it's going to produce massive amounts of virus um, relative to a, to a flying fox, which is, it's a bat. It's a small flying organism. So it sheds much, not, not only shed, does it shed vast amounts of virus, but then on top of that, it's in close proximity to humans. So uh, pigs ended up being the bridge hose that tr essentially transferred the virus from the bats to humans, okay? Mm. And this is a pattern we see again and again. So, for example, there's a Hendra virus in Australia that passages the amplification ho uh, host are horses. And there is some evidence right now that, although it's with the, the, the picture is still unclear, that pangolins were um, involved in the amplification of uh, SARS-CoV-2 and the introduction into humans. Okay, so apparently there are some elements of the genome of the vi of this virus that are most closely related to pangolin viruses, which is strange because normally pangolins and bats are not really in close proximity. They live in different habitats. Okay, they're, they're pretty different. So a pangolin is basically terrestrial, um, scale-covered, small, medium-sized mammal that feeds on termites and on ants. Bats are aerial hunters that are nocturnal. So it's, it's, it, these are not organisms that you would expect are going to be in close proximity. What they do have in common, and this is an observation, 
we don't know whether correlation implies causation, is that they're both organisms that are important for and are being traded in the Far East. They are held in captivity. And we know that um, because wildlife populations in, in, in East Asia are collapsing because of illegal, because of illegal trade and uh, poaching, what has sprung up in order to cover the needs are these wildlife farms. They're about uh, estimated 20,000 wildlife farms in China alone that breed wild animals and sell either the animals themselves to the, these wet markets or their products. And the animals are often held under pretty terrible conditions. So it's basically pretty inhumane, at least for winter Western standards, the way these animals are being uh, held. But in addition to that, they're often species that are unrelated to each other, that are held in, in close proximity, and which apparently have the ability to infect each other. So essentially well, what Well, they're these- also just being raised. One thing you didn't capture there real quick. Johannes is they're also just being raised for spurious medicinal purposes or for food. Tigers are a farm to table meal across much of Asia, including Vietnam and, and China and other countries. So these enclosed facilities, these small zoos, if you will, they are simply raising these endangered species for human consumption, for spurious medicinal and food consumption. Is that correct? Yes, that's absolutely correct. So many of these organisms are, um, are, 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 are sold because people erroneously think that somehow they will make them particularly vigorous. They are going to somehow enhance their health. Sometimes it's an issue. It's a, a um, it's a serving wild meat is a demonstration of wealth. So Business people will actually invite uh, other uh, colleagues with which they, which, whom they had a business deal, and they'll seal the deal by eating some sort of throwing a big banquet. So it's basically the, the people will consume wild products for a variety of reasons, either because they want to show off or because they erroneously think that they're actually, it's actually good for their health. But um, essentially what we're having here is a situation in which wildlife trafficking, the way it's being tolerated or promoted in, um, in East Asia, um, is unsustainable from a conservation perspective. It's uh, useless from a public, uh, from, from ostensible benefits it, it, it bestows to people. And it also um, creates a public health risk. So it's a lose-lose-lose kind of proposition. It represents a huge risk for humanity. And essentially, I think if there's one lesson, really obvious lesson that has come from this pandemic is that these practices need to stop. They're unsustainable. Unless we like to have more of these pandemics sweeping the planet every other year, unless these things stop, we will continue to have these pandemic diseases. This is irresponsible and inhumane uh, treatment of animals, and it's something that uh, all of humanity is paying the price for bad practices of a small group of people. It's important to say here that these are practices that are limited to relatively small segments of East Asian societies. It's not that everyone eats. Is that true? Meat. This is not an issue of huge scope. It's it's an issue of huge scope from the standpoint that uh, of the effect that it's having on wild populations. We've gone from 100,000 tigers at the beginning of the 20th century to fewer than 4,000 tigers in the wild as of today. So per, even though it's a small, maybe percentage-wise, the number of people who are partaking in this, the, the effect that it's having on wild populations is huge. Is Yes, absolutely. So it's a relatively small percent of the society that engages in these practices but nonetheless, you know, even a small percentage of 1.3 billion people, the population of China, um, it's, it's actually ends up having quite an impact. Okay. So it's very, these populations are now so depleted that it's very easy to have a severe impact, even if it's a small percentage of the, of the, of the population that engages in these practices. So it's still a very important problem. And the governments in, um, 
in East Asia are actually starting to realize how serious this is. So, for example, um, China has banned this wildlife trade. Uh, Vietnam just followed suit a few days ago. So they're realizing that this needs to stop. The problem is um, to which extent actually get the law, do, do the laws get enforced? And we've been here before. So when in 2004 we had the SARS epidemic and it came out that um, the cause for this um, epidemic were human activities and wildlife trade, there was a there was a lot of lobbying to try to get the Chinese government to ban uh, these practices, ban wet markets, ban uh, these wildlife farms, which, by the way, are really inhumane places. I mean, these are places where people will keep bears. So one of the unfortunate mm. products that um, people think have medicinal value is bear bile. And people have come up with this, with this practice of keeping bears um immobilized, captive bears immobilized, fistulated. So there is a tube that basically just drains their bile so it can be collected on a daily basis. So this is completely cruel to the animals and it's completely useless in terms of like the benefits it bestows. Bile does not have any kind of health benefits. Yet humans are the most superior, most advanced, most intelligent species to ever grace this earth, right? We're, we're criminalizing, we're exploiting these wonderful conscious beings for completely spurious, erroneous purposes. Yet somehow history has dictated and, and the scientific consensus is that we're, we're this advanced superior species. Well, yeah. I mean, think about the following. Um, at this point, so this is a recurring problem. And right now, this particular um, epidemic started in in east asia but the same kind of like poaching and wildlife killing practices occur in other continents as well especially in sub-saharan africa and we've had there numerous diseases that have emerged because of this because of this wildlife hunting wildlife trade and these spillover events the most famous of which was aids okay so aids is the revenge of the vanquished aids we got it from chimpanzees. It's a chimp disease. And um, the reason mm. why it spilled over from chimpanzees into humans is because um, humans in sub-Saharan Africa make a practice of hunting chimps and eating them. So here we are as a species killing and eating our closest relatives. And I think there's a barbarism in that that is it's, it's not easy to forget. And it says a lot about who we are as a species. Okay. So it's something Well, I would say, how do you think philosophically or ethically about the difference between the bushmeat trade, which is ostensibly for protein for consumption and some of these practices that are documented in the film, the last animals of, as we were speaking just now, spurious medicinal purposes. I mean, in my eyes, neither is, you know, it's about as bad as you can get, but speaking to consumption of protein for for nutritional needs even if it is our basically a <laughs> shares 99% of our dna versus these spurious medicinal purposes and the the conditions that these bears and tigers and pangolins are being kept in how do you evaluate those two situations ethically well so um it's an understandable problem if you have uh, societies impoverished uh, communities in sub-saharan africa that don't have enough protein and uh, that rely on uh, on wildlife to cover some of the protein needs and I, and and that one needs to distinguish between that and the way often um, or typically wildlife is being consumed in the far east where you have situations where basically people are much more affluent and it's a luxury item and um People use people don't have to consume wildlife. They do it because they want to uh, flaunt their wealth, or because they follow uh, incorrect uh, practices in terms of like what's healthy. So yes, there are differences there, and they need to be addressed in different ways. But both of these are non-sustainable practices. In both cases, it's all of humanity that bears the price for these practices. When a pathogen spills over, when 
uh, HIV spilled over and we had the global uh, AIDS pandemic, millions, dozens of millions of people died without good reason, just because some people mm -hmm. were choosing to follow a practice that was cruel and unsustainable and dangerous from a public health perspective. Right. So speaking to that, it's been called by some experts what is happening in these wet markets. And, and I do want to go to that more specifically about policies that are emerging and, and your take on that in a second. But it's been called almost a form of bioterrorism be because of the effects that it's having on humanity. Would you, it, it's akin to bioterrorism. Would you agree with that assessment? Well, I mean, I don't think, bio, in my mind, bioterrorism um, involves an element of intention, you know, intent to cause uh, terror. Uh, I don't think that intent is in this particular situation here, but that still doesn't mean that this doesn't need to stop because it's irresponsible. So mm -hmm. um, it's just something that uh, whether Chinese government, for example, or the uh, Vietnamese government, they really need to enforce the laws they have in place right now. Because um, we were here 20 years ago, and when, when SARS broke out, it was very clear what was going on. There was uh, the international community asked these governments to stop these practices. They didn't. Here we are again. Now we have the COVID-19 pandemic. If we continue... Um, the same way, there are millions of other viruses out there, and they will keep coming until we actually stop these practices. And I should also add that it's not just wildlife trade or these wet markets or the wildlife farms. The, um, there are other practices that promote the emergence of, uh, of zoonotic pathogens, one of the most important ones that's perhaps not often spoken enough about is environmental destruction. So when you have in the tropics, when you have people cutting down the rainforest and turning it into soybean or oil palm plantations, um, there you're actually you're creating this edge between rainforest and between human-modified ecosystems, whether these are farms or uh, ranch lands, and on those edges. You have two worlds getting in contact with each other. You have all the wildlife that live in the rainforest and their associated attendant viruses and pathogens, and then the human uh, commensals and the humans and the various domesticated animals that are associated with them that get in contact along those edges. And that's where you start having uh, the spillover from wildlife into domesticated animals and humans, but also the other way around. This process, this phenomenon goes in the other way around in which you have actually what we call spillback, in which you have human or domesticated animal pathogens that are now spilling into wildlife populations and are wiping them out. So mm -hmm. um, it's something that's a little bit less understood, but from a conservation perspective, it's a really serious problem. The role that humans have in disseminating pathogens and spreading them into wildlife populations and causing wildlife population collapses all over the world. So for example, um, most of the discussion right now is about the impacts of COVID-19 on humans. Well, it turns out that COVID-19 um, also infects um, wild animals. It infects cats, for example. And um, We've already had situations in which it spilled back into domesticated animals, into semi-domesticated, semi-farmed animals, um, um, uh, mink, for example, in the Netherlands. So what we've had, what everyone's concerned about is the spillover, the way we, re we received this pathogen. But uh, almost invariably, and this is a prediction I will make in the next few months, we will see uh, reports about spillback events in which COVID-19 is now sp spilling into wildlife populations. So it wouldn't be surprising, for example, if COVID-19 um, spills from infected humans into tiger populations, which are susceptible for the, to this virus, and starts now circulating in wild cat populations in Asia. Okay? So, and then you have a situation in which you've actually fought the virus, all the humans are vaccinated, or a lot of people, but now you've introduced the virus in, into wildlife. And each time humans get in contact with wildlife, they get infected again. Okay. Mm 
So, um, mm-hmm. so this is a spillback event, you know, when we give the virus back to the wildlife and then it can have all kinds of terrible effects on, um, on wildlife. So to give you an example, bubonic plague, okay, bubonic plague. Um, every year we have several cases, cases of this disease in humans in North America. So people will actually pick it up from things like prairie dogs, for example, or some other wild animals, wild rodents. It turns out that bubonic plague was actually introduced in the wild America, is not, was not native to North American wildlife. It was introduced here by humans in the 19th century. Um, we were able to fight the disease, control it, eliminate it in human populations, but we did introduce it to wildlife. And it's impossible to eradicate from prairie dog populations. So now it's the gift that keeps coming back. So you rarely have um, human-to-human transmission, although that that is possible. It's just it's a very uh, severe disease. When it happens, the public health system jumps on those limited cases and is able to stump it out. But it's actually a really serious uh, problem, potentially. And we keep having these events. So, for example, there was there were just some reports about bubonic plague spillover in Mongolia, where um, people ate uh, uh, marmots, the East Asian marmot, and then got infected with this disease. And it just shows that it's not a good idea to consume wildlife because you expose yourself to whatever pathogens or viruses they they carry. Do you think there's any implications of what we're talking about for factory farming and the fact that many Americans and people across the the world consume animals as a primary protein source? Yeah. So a, a broad range of human activities that promote the dissemination of, of, of disease. You know, so we talked about environmental destruction. We talked about wildlife farming. We talked about uh, wet markets and poaching. Um, but another set of conditions that promote the more emergence of, of, of new diseases is actually this mass farming of domesticated animals. So we've had these outbreaks of terrible diseases in chicken farms or in uh, pig farms, um, which is not really surprising if you have thousands of animals packed together under not, and we're talking about here about Western societies. This is it's very easy to point the finger at um, what's happening in the in the in Asia, but um, the U.S. and the West has actually um, definitely a responsibility in this problem as well. So when we have these um, CAFOs, these like big facilities where lots of animals are being held together under stressful conditions, it's very easy to have an outbreak of a disease there that may either stay in the animal population and cause economic losses or spill over into humans. So one of the most uh, well-understood cases comes from the emergence of antibiotically resistant uh, pathogens. So these are strains of E. coli, for example, that are resistant to antibiotics. And these tend to emerge in these big farms where Pigs, for example, or chicken are held under crowded conditions and in order to promote growth, um, weight gain, in other words, and also um, in order to, f- to prevent the, um, the spread of, of bacterial infections, um, farmers will actually give to the animals um, antibiotics as a precautionary practice. So you don't treat animals that are sick with antibiotics but just you just give to everyone all your captive animals antibiotics because they'll grow better. Well, what this does is this continuous exposure to antibiotics leads to the evolution of strains of bacteria in their gut that are actually resistant to antibiotics. And that's one issue when you have these superbugs, basically, that circulate in, in pig populations. The problem is when humans then handle the pigs or eat the pig meat, there is a good chance that they actually get exposed to these bugs. And that's when you start seeing really serious problems. When you see these infections that normally would be easily treatable with antibiotics, but suddenly it doesn't work anymore. The antibiotics don't work anymore. And things that we should be able to treat now become turned to lethal infections. And eventually, these kinds of pathogens uh, 
um, start having a because they have an advantage. These resistant pathogens that keep spreading through the human population. So this is one of the main reasons why nowadays, if you go to the doctor and you take and you get an antibiotic prescription, there is a good chance that it's not going to work as well as it did thirty or forty years ago. We're basically running out of antibiotics that are effective because all the ones that we're using, we've been using, and we've been abusing and overusing have led to the evolution of these resistant strains. Um, so the emergence of antibiotically resistant bacteria has um, to do something with this in part, it's not the only reason, but a big reason with this mass animal facilities and uh, the um, administration of large amounts of antibiotics as precautionary agents. So all these things you're describing are alarm bells ringing off for me about the state of humanity and the state of our relationship to the natural world and to other species. Mm -hmm. And as we talked about earlier in this conversation, this pandemic is an issue or, or was predicted by scientists for years from these markets. And actually, some some have said in the epidemiological community and the disease world that we're lucky that this was not a bird flu, as you were saying, with a, a very high R not an extremely lethal virus of, of this kind. Mm -hmm. And I think of climate change, of how for decades, literally since the late 70s, early 80s, the scientific community has been ringing alarm bells about the existential issues that are presented by fossil fuel burning. So when you look at, when you zoom out and look at these big picture trends that you're just describing and the relationship that the, the way that humans are treating them nonchalantly and, and continuing as business as usual, what do you make of our, of the possibilities of our, our species? The, you know, how do you evaluate these existential threats and whether these alarm bells are enough or, or whether we will change and, and get on course. <laughs> yes. Well, it's, it's basically pretty simple. We are engaged in a whole slew of practices that are antithetical to public health. Basically people um, prioritize short-term gain over long-term cost and the question is to which, and this can be in relationship to uh, wildlife poaching or wildlife farming or bushmeat or environmental destruction. The destruction of tropical ecosystems is, is just an, uh, it's a crime. It's un, an unsustainable crime that's happening right now. Or the continuation of practices that are going to exacerbate global climate change. So, it's uh, incumbent on all of us, and especially on the scientific community, to go out and communicate these insights and push policymakers, who often have only uh, short-term interest in mind, being re-elected, to do the right thing. Okay, And one of the concerns is that we live in a society that's increasingly anti-scientific, in which facts don't count anymore. Um, People are entitled to their own facts, to their own opinions. That's what they feel. And um, if you can't, we can't use arguments and physical evidence to make a case and make a decision. But if instead we live in little internet echo chambers where we share whatever worldview we may have with other people who have the same bias worldview, we lose the ability to actually solve problems. The reason why we've been successful as a species is because we've been able to apply logical thinking, scientific insight to our mind, to our life. And if we stop doing this, we'll bear the, we'll bear the price. So um, as we, as human population keeps increasing and the ecological footprint we have on the planet increases as well, um, we have less room for error. And unless we actually learn something from our mistakes and change our course of action, we are going to have really serious problems. And I think this, if there's one thing we've seen from this pandemic is how um, isolationist thinking, thinking that you can erect barriers, erect walls, and that's going to solve your problem, 
that's not the the nature of ecological problems that are global in scale are such that we really have to think big and we have to think as a species, as a global community. I imagine we share a similar sentiment in that we're not optimistic that these that these wake-up calls that are all around us, that the bushfires happening in Australia, the climate refugees that are already starting to mobilize, the obvious collapse of ecosystems across the planet, this pandemic. I'm not optimistic that as a society, I don't see us changing for the long term. And and this is related to this question uh, that I had about the closure of these markets in in China and and, in Vietnam. Are you aware that they exempted medicinal importing and selling of animals and their parts for medicinal purposes in those two countries? Um, I don't know the details of the law. I mean, I, I would say that in, it's actually an easier problem. This is an easier problem to solve than the issue of, let's say, global climate change, which is a truly global problem that doesn't have a localized solution. So the good thing is these are specific groups of people and specific locations where we can concentrate our efforts. And I do believe that um, things will get better. I do believe that um, things will change. What is important there is that in, uh, that enough people speak up and that there is enough of a push. People put their money where their mouth is. There's persistence. And that eventually will actually will translate into political will and pressure that will actually shut these places down. So I think um, looking, for example, how global climate change is being addressed by the international community, yes, things are getting worse or that maybe they're not getting better fast enough, but it's pretty evident that the world is changing, and uh, and if we can achieve change with global climate change, with uh, greenhouse gas emissions, or with things like uh, with the ozone layer depletion, which was a big problem twenty years ago, and that was addressed to a large extent, not completely, but to a large extent through international agreements, I'm optimistic that we can actually um, deal with this issue if we actually put our mind to it, okay? So what's really important is that um, people remember what they're experiencing right now, the price they're paying, the inconvenience, the loss of loved uh, ones who die, um, the economic damage to the United States, and think about where did this come from? What can we do against it? Well, I'm glad that you have an optimistic mindset and I go back on uh, and forth on this and my perspectives are informed by what's happening on the ground and and science and one of one of the most optimistic pieces that I've read that has informed my perspective is a book Steven Pinker's most recent book which is called Enlightenment Now and basically it outlines all of these areas including on the environmental front where we have made progress as a society. But it's clear that the our relationship to the natural world and our relationship to, to other species is causing them to teeter on the edge of extinction and annihilation. So there's you, you can really look at this two ways, but it's it's clear and we are making progress, but whether it's enough to save frankly our civilization and frankly our species and save the ecosystems that are still remaining is it's not without doubt. It, it is in doubt. So these problems are huge problems, but ultimately they do depend on individual action. You know, we're not unindividuated people. We are individual people that form a collective, that that form an aggregate that informs policies and that informs practices. The reason for climate change is obviously takes place at a huge governmental policy level, but it also takes place at an individual level. And I think you have a great perspective about this to share for kind of getting people to wake up and getting people to realize that their actions matter. So what would you say to whoever is listening about the fact that the fate of the planet, the fate of this of our species is, is in their hands as, as individuals? What would you share with them? Yeah, I think that... Um 
it's easy to look at the global environmental problems, whether these are issues like global climate change or biodiversity loss or this uh, COVID pandemic, which at its heart is actually an environmental problem, and become discouraged. But one of the things that's important to remember here is that, yes, we bear responsibility. And as individuals who feel perhaps very small in comparison to these problems, but at the end of the day, as an individual, you don't need to solve all the problems of the planet. I mean, we're over 7 billion people. If um, each of us just focuses on one particular problem and really put sustained effort in trying to solve this problem, if each of us does that, we're going to take care of all these problems. So rather than sort of like becoming overwhelmed and pessimistic, looking at things like global climate change, um, I think it's important for someone to think about, okay, what can I do? Which is, what's the small issue I can focus on? And then perhaps think very carefully what you want to focus your attention on, where you're maybe well suited to achieve change, and then stick with this. Um, because in my experience, it really makes a big difference whether you actually put sustained effort in changing something and not sort of like do a big push, flash in the pan, and then it's over, but keep working on it. So persistence pays off in achieving change. And another trick to sort of like achieve change is to actually um, convince other people to help you out, to participate. There's strength in numbers, okay? So if you can stick with the specific problem you picked and you can actually convince other people to help you out, you have really good chances of achieving change. That is really inspiring advice. And I think that speaks to someone like you or I who is inclined towards activism and inclined towards environmental activism specifically. But one of the other things that we've talked about is the person driving who goes to the lot and chooses to drive an SUV or the person who continues to eat in a largely meat-based diet or the person who doesn't bring their reusable bags to the store or the person who buys, you know, goes to, to China and buys a, an ivory bracelet or things of this nature, they're, they tend to be devalued because they're just an individual action. And I think in, in people's minds, there's a real disconnect between those individual actions and how they roll up to the aggregate. So yeah, how would you describe why people should be more motivated? And this is very much in line with the issues we're talking about, really the existential threats that are facing our, that are facing our, our species and the, the planet. Why should people wake up to, to these issues and, and why should they change their individual actions? Mm -hmm. So clearly what we do as society is the aggregate effect of individual actions. And it's important that each of us focusing on institutional change is key the world is connected, right? That, that, uh, that in ecology, things are connected. And I think that's mm -hmm. absolutely the case. So we are connected to the natural world. What I'm seeing often with my students is they tend to think that because they're sitting in their office and they're on the, uh, on the internet and they play computer games and they get their food from the supermarket or the corner store, that they're unconnected to the real world. And this is absolutely not the case. So our connection to the real physical world, even if it's a step removed, is absolutely there. You know, the food, for example, doesn't come from the supermarket. You buy it at Kroger or wherever, but at the end of the day, it's being produced by natural ecosystems. And if natural ecosystems collapse, you aren't going to have food, okay? The same way um, your actions affect the real world. So when you go to the mall to buy a sneaker, that sneaker did not fall from the sky. Okay, That sneaker was produced out of plastic that was made from petroleum that was pumped out of the ground and shipped in an accident-prone supertanker across the Caribbean or the Atlantic Ocean. It was made out of leather from cattle that probably grazed on some sort of patch of uh, uh, logged tropical rainforest in South America. So every time 
you make a choice to go and buy something, you actually impact the real world. And this is a very important thing to remember because your actions matter. The way you behave as a consumer affects the real world because, as you said, everything is interconnected even if you don't, even if it's not immediately obvious. So it's really important to try to keep that in mind and make informed mm-hmm. choices as a consumer and as a voter. No, it's so true, like you said. So that is why I named the show the what I did, and I'm trying to drive home this point that our actions do matter and everything is connected. You've been very generous with your time, Professor. I know you have a ton going on, and I, I'm very grateful that you took the time for this conversation. Absolutely. It was uh, a pleasure. If you're enjoying the All Things Connected podcast, there's many ways you can show your support. You can write a review on Apple Podcasts or on Stitcher, wherever you listen. You can share it with a friend or talk about it on your own podcast. You can post about it on social media, such as sharing your favorite episode. Or you can support it directly on Patreon at patreon.com forward slash all things connected. Thank you very much. Your support is much appreciated.